Hello and welcome to the Midwest Football Podcast, episode 31. This is the podcast where we break down all the biggest pigskin plots, gridiron gossip, and best prognostications in full pads. And we do it all for the NFL's upper Midwestern teams. All of them, the Bears, Bengals, Browns, Colts, Lions, Packers, Steelers, and Vikings. I'm Joe Smith, one of your hosts, and I am right here in Detroit, Michigan, where I was born and raised and where we're seeing more November rain than a convention for Guns N' Roses cover bands. Now let me introduce to you my co-host and friend, Chicago's own Brian Rosenquist. Hello, Midwestlanders and friends. Uh, well, there might be a lot of November rain up in uh, Detroit. Here it's the changing of the, well, not leaves, it's the changing of the license plates as uh, the Florida license plates give way to New York and Quebec. Um, it is a very <laughs> wonderful time of this year. And I got a question for you. With Taylor Swift on by and Coach Prime on life support, he's got to win out to make a bowl game. What do you think ESPN did for ratings this week? Um, <laughs> Stephen A. Smith's Love Life? Sure, that sounds exciting. if you like the show help our podcast grow by giving us a five-star review contacting us via our email which is midwestfootballpodcast at gmail.com or recommending our show to your friends speaking of friends we've been getting feedback from some of our midwestlander listeners and you are all our friends what i've heard is that you like the college football coverage at least as part of the news segment We're still an NFL podcast, but we will not shy away from major collegiate stories like this week's firing of Jimbo Fisher and another Michigan Wolverines scandal update, both coming right up. But first, the seat got too hot for one NFL assistant today, and after Monday Night Football, it's hard to blame them. Brian? So uh, this is in today. The Bills fired offensive coordinator Ken Dorsey and uh, Joe Brady will take over. Ken Dorsey, famous for um, getting knocked silly in the national championship game 22 years ago, 21 years ago, maybe against the Ohio State University Buckeyes, where he uh, turf just threw a ball into the end zone. Sorry, right at the feet of the wide open receiver in uh, overtime. But uh, yeah. we wish him well. It was a little bit surprising because last year the Buffalo Bills were what a top three offense in the league and was being mentioned as a possible head coaching candidate as recently as this past off season. They're still a top 10. It's just the turnovers have been out of control. I was going to say, I watched that game on Monday night where the Broncos beat them at the last second. That was not on the offensive coordinator. They they moved the ball whenever they were not fumbling the ball away. I mean, just put a, a Benny Hill soundtrack on that game, and it makes a lot of sense because I mean, <laughs> I mean, even even uh, James Cook's long uh, like forty yard run in the second half uh, to set the touchdown. He fumbled the ball back into his own hands. I think that was like the third fumble he was involved in alone. Gabe Davis had a ball hit him off the top of the hands right into a defender, which I was joking because uh, my dynasty league, I needed my opponent needed Gabe Davis to like outscore Josh Allen. And we were joking that my opponent paid him off to uh, throw that catch (laughs) into an interception to help him win, uh, pull off the win. But I was going to, yeah, I was kind of thinking to myself in the back of my mind, did Josh Allen just get this coach fired. Well, I mean, he's thrown some bad interception, but like, look at the game losing drive for them. 
it wasn't the offensive coordinator or even Josh Allen that called a defensive play where they were playing defense like they, it was fourth and one and they needed to get the stop. And Jerry Judy just ran right by the defender and Russell Wilson did what he did best. He chucked up a moon ball for him to adjust to, which, you know, almost always results in a pass interference when the receiver stops and cuts back for the underthrown ball, which got them into field goal range. So it's a best well, playing bad, football, yeah, underthrown deep ball. So bad pass interference, but I think it was because the pass interference was a result on a bad play call. They should have been a little bit deeper. I mean, there was a super windy game. We saw already a couple missed kicks and bad, you know, throws taken by the wind. So a long field goal is not a gimme. So you don't need to play it like it's fourth and one. And then he misses the field goal and the bills are just chilling with 12 guys on the field. I've never seen a 12th man in the uh, violation like that. Usually it's like the offense catches a guy running off the field or something. No, they just right, had 12 right. guys sitting there. And as a guy who played special teams in high school, there's always someone that counts the number of players on the field, whether it be the linebacker safety or someone on the sideline. And I don't think anybody in the bills even noticed or cared, which to me, that wasn't the offensive coordinator's job. That's the special teams. So basically the defensive coordinator, the special teams, and the inability to hold on to a football, it's scapegoat central. It's it's scapegoat season. Let's leave it at that. It, it, but it is a poorly coached team. We can agree with that. Yeah, I, I, they might have, looking at the statistics, the offense has been the most exceptional part of the Buffalo Bills team, and they might have just moved on from the one coach who did something yeah. productive like that. My opinion is after watching that game from start to finish, I think the Bills should get two losses in the loss column and the Broncos should get a half a win. I don't want to take away too much from the Broncos. They fought, but the Bills just kept trying to hand them that game and the Broncos would not t- run away with it. It was it was an it was a rough to watch game. And that's all I got to say. But unfortunately, I, I'm sure Dorsey will bounce back because they had been playing well. And I don't think the ball control is necessarily his issue. There's a lot of fumbles. And the usually interceptions are more on the quarterback forcing stuff. Usually, or wide receiver doing something completely moronic. Yes, that's true. If they're on the wrong page, too, that would be on the offensive coordinator. Coaches on the move will be a recurring theme through the uh, the news segment today. But before we get to some of the other coaches, I did want to manage motion that we uh, we had some movement on the running back side of things in Atlanta, where the Falcons appear to have finally discovered that they drafted a running back in the first round this year, and maybe they should use him. Yeah, but then they lost, and I think Arthur Smith pointed that out. I don't even know if he did or not. I saw that tweet, and I believe it. Like it just made me laugh. Like, see, we used our good player and we still lost. That had nothing to do with Bijan. But for fantasy owners, it was good to see him do uh, play well and actually get volume. Well, not just fantasy owners, but also any Falcon fans that you know, Bijan Robinson should be out carrying Tyler Algier by two to one, which is what he's happened. Out, he's out carrying him by two yards per carry. So yeah, <laughs> I'll agree with that. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. I don't know if it's too little too late to try and save Arthur Smith's job or try to salvage the season, but maybe eventually they will find that they actually have star players that they've drafted. Yeah, they are fading fast, though. 
Speaking of fading fast, here's Texas A&M who decided that they can just print up some money and told Jimbo Fisher to hit the road with over $77 million guaranteed left on his deal. By far the most expensive firing in the history of college football. And the first thing that friend of the podcast Raymond said when he heard the news was, can we get him at Michigan State? Well, I'm glad you said I'm glad he asked that because Michigan State has deep pockets too. I believe they dropped 90 million extension on Mel Tucker, who also got let go this year. I do not believe they owe him the money yet, although that'll probably go through the courts process depending on how the parting of ways goes down the line. Realistically, there will probably be some kind of settlement, but yeah. So you sent me this Jimbo Fisher's uh most expensive firing in college football was 76 77.6 million. The second highest was Gus Malzahn fired from uh Auburn at 21.4. And with he was maybe four or five seasons into his 10-year 100 million dollar contract, I think, or maybe two or three if he's oh 77 million. Mal Tucker was only what two years into his ninety million dollar extension this year when he got we'll just say part of ways, and in a similar note, you know the Raiders we talked about this last week they fired um, their coach Josh McDaniels and this comes off a season and a half ago or two seasons ago really because it was also mid season where they also fired John Gruden and I forgot the exact number but. Mark Davis, owner of the Las Vegas Raiders, owes a lot of money to two coaches who aren't playing, who are no longer coaching for him. And I don't have any sympathy for that because it is a rich business owner, you know, who has to front the money. Maybe he has to pick it up, pass it on to ticket sales. My issue with the colleges, these college coaches are getting paid so much money and getting fired so early. It's kind of getting annoying to me because. I just, just doesn't seem like colleges are colleges anymore. They're supposed to be prestigious universities of higher learning, but the highest paid government employee for most states is the is the football coach, the head football coach, and then they're getting rid of them, and then they got to bring in a new guy at the highest paid salary, and then the students are running away with crippling debt because the tuition's out of control. The NILs, the players are being paid, but not by the university, and it's kind of getting ridiculous at this point to be honest and it kind of annoys me when public coach universities fire coaches after and have to pay them this much money because the money is going to go on to the taxpayers and the student tuition and that kind of annoys me i think that's kind of irresponsible and i think that university higher up should be more responsible for this than just the head coach for not winning enough games going six and ten or six and four whatever jimbo fisher was this year yeah, theoretically, it's supposed to be athletic booster spending totally outside of the academic budget. But let's get real. Athletic boosters contrib- contributions are directly tied to how well the football team does. So that's great if they hire a big time coach and, you know, like a Nick Saban at Alabama and all they do is win and the donations keep on flowing and it's a gravy train. But if it doesn't, that contract's guaranteed. And if you completely belly up like a Michigan state was well on its way to, and that's when it's back on the general budget and everything else. I mean, there's that old, uh, yeah, Alabama, was it Alabama A&M? Who was that? Uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham, who wanted to save money by folding up their football program because their football program was losing millions of dollars a year 
and they immediately lost so many alumni donations that now they were losing five to six million dollars a year. Hmm. So that's money that they just had to go to the general fund to minimize the losses that the general fund was receiving if they didn't have a football program because so many people were using that as their basis of donation. Even though they stunk, they were giving because they had a program. Mm, That's fair. The bottom line is look at who's in line to be in the college football playoff. Most of them were hired from traditional sources, not splash sources. Ryan Day was a promotion from within. Jim Harbaugh was more of a splash, but... But he the, played there. He 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 was alumni. Right. They they had all hands on deck to lure him from the NFL. Georgia was a traditional search. Yeah, former Alabama coordinator, I think. Most of the Pac-12 teams are traditional searches. Maybe that's what you should be doing instead of giving somebody a ridiculous contract that where they will never have to coach again. Just saying. Yeah, that's fair. But you mentioned Jim Harbaugh. Yeah. Let's talk about that some more again this week. (laughs) This is the gift that keeps on giving. I'm sorry. This is our Taylor Swift story for those who might be a little annoyed with the oversaturation, but I can't get enough of this because it's just like more stuff keeps coming out every week. So that's why we bring it. We'll try to keep it somewhere. Since we were uh, on the air last time, since we recorded – Jim Harbaugh was suspended by the Big Ten for the rest of the regular season, which is three games. In order for that to happen, the Big Ten had to convene a committee of university presidents to approve it because the Big Ten cannot suspend somebody more than two games without a special permission. And they you know, rubber stamped it. They could not wait to hit Harbaugh with this. This is going to sound weird coming from me but i don't think it was the right punishment and let me explain why mm-hmm. immediately the michigan wolverine started playing the victim card because there is no smoking gun evidence yet that directly ties jim harbaugh to any masterminding of this plot or even that he necessarily knew Cue the people that say it doesn't matter because he's the CEO and he is responsible for everything underneath him. The buck stops here. I'm one of them. And that is totally correct. I completely agree with that. But if it were me, I would have hammered the, the assistance for which there is direct evidence that this happened in their purview, which also would have been more damaging to Michigan's immediate Hmm. football operations because Jim Harbaugh is not the play caller on either offense or defense. That makes sense. I kind of like that. I never thought about it from that perspective. Uh, Now you had a great point you were telling me and I had kind of agreed or thought of, you know, along these lines independently Mm -hmm. earlier, this was off camera where you said the reason they did it this way, where it's a game day penalty only It's because they wanted to try and sneak it in where it wasn't going to be challenged or held up in court, very likely. Yeah, and and that's because the Big Ten commissioner, he he has a degree from Harvard Law, so I I think he spent time looking through ways that he could avoid getting a loophole to overturn it, and – that's why it's such a weird specific penalty. This is me theory crafting for the record. Don't quote this, you know, for the listeners, but because 
it's not a it's he's not suspended from the team for the next three seasons only game day only the head coach so he's still there at practice he's still laying in the game plan you know he might be he's doing still everything, driving but... around the outside of beaver stadium in a golf cart on a <laughs> yeah we don't know <laughs> yeah he might be on a bluetooth with one of the uh you know the assistants for all we know probably not that's probably against the suspension but it's not it like is. he's known for cheating so um that's how he got here oh and also too it's not that uh, our big tank commissioner came from just harvard law he was also in the major league baseball front office during the Astros cheating scandal, which I think that he already has experience with something like this. And he, and he's seen all the evidence. Cause I know that's one of the big things they talk about is overwhelming evidence. And to me, I think the, the, we know the NCAA won't have a finish, won't finish their um, investigation until 2024 or 2025. And I think that's why <laughs> yeah. 2125, the way the NCAA works. Yeah, seriously. And he's seen enough to know that when this comes out, it's going to look pretty bad when basically nothing happens for a few years. And then, uh, you know, let's put it this way. I think one of the reasons why the university of Michigan is throwing such a tantrum about this is because they know that if they can just push it off to due process with the NCAA, which has been notoriously shown to act way too little, way too late. They've vacated many titles. No one cares. I mean, I think USC won a title, but it's, I think they vacated it, but we don't really care. We remember them winning it. So if you're Jim Harbaugh, you have a really good shot to win the national championship this year with this team and then go to coach in the NFL. And then by the time the sanctions come in 2024, 2026, it's, it'll punish somebody else. We've seen this many times. We saw the Trestle thing at Ohio State. You know, Jim, you know, um, Urban Meyer three years later came in with an undefeated team, couldn't, wasn't postseason eligible. So they don't punish, NCAA doesn't punish the right people. And I think that the Big Ten commissioner wanted to act faster. And I think this was the most he could do without Michigan getting re- uh, major retaliation for it. Yeah, the Michigan was running to the courthouse to try and uh, get an injunction on this, which they couldn't and do they because of the timing of the suspension came down literally hours before the Penn State kickoff. Yeah, but they, the, the judge still upheld it. They still met about it. They still upheld the suspension. They or sorry, they did not approve the restraining order or whatever the term legal terminology was. But right. and to me, like it's very interesting because just my little follow the money on this situation is that with the NIL, there's less and less competitive teams because more and more of the um, talent is getting condensed. It's like major league baseball during the Steinbrenner era. If you, for those of those who are old enough to remember that. And there's only a handful of truly ratings bringing teams. And the big 10 has two of them, Ohio state and Michigan. And knowing the climate of this Michigan throwing a tantrum and threatening to leave the big 10 because there's, they're just being unlawfully punished doesn't really make sense from the Big Ten perspective. The Big Ten wants ratings. They want money. They like money. That's what this thing does. Into Everybody in college football likes money. Yeah, that's what – college isn't about education. It's about making money. And that's why I went to college because I wanted to get a degree to help me make money. But So I'm, one of the, I'm part of the problem. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm, I'm one of the executives. <laughs> so if you're the Big Ten, you're not going to go out of your way to antagonize one of your two big ticket money, you know, bell cow horses or whatever. The fact that the Big Ten is pursuing this tells me that they've seen the evidence. This reminds me of like if the NFL 
seen the video of Ray Rice before it went public. And then the backlash wasn't was more that they knew what he did. They saw it. And it wasn't enough once the evidence came out. And I just feel like this this kind of following the money makes it look like Michigan's definitely more guilty, whoever it is, Harbaugh or not, because the Big Ten would not openly antagonize potentially losing Michigan to a rival conference and losing all the ratings and millions of dollars that come with it. Ticket sales, ratings, et cetera. Go on. 100%. Let me throw in a couple of local tidbits that we are getting up here that maybe aren't getting sent out nationally. And in fact, they kind of had to sneak it in between the bevy of Michigan radio shows. But the, as part of the big 10 letter to the open letter to the university of Michigan, The Big Ten made it clear that the NCAA has shared, I'm I'm paraphrasing, indisputable evidence that unequivocally proves that the scandal happens and that it happened within the orbit of numerous Michigan coaches. The Big Ten also specifically said that those coaches' orbits did not include Jim Harbaugh personally. They couldn't directly tie it to Harbaugh. But they hit Harbaugh as the representation of the program at large, which is really where they're going to try and proceed. Michigan is going to try and procedurally nitpick this is the rule is designed to punish programs, not people. And that's how the rule is specifically written. It's supposed to be big fines. So we'll see what if they have any luck there. But the bottom line is they're just trying to Michigan's just trying to keep the runway clear for a national title. That is all they care about right now. Mm-hmm. Win the national title. They are five games away as far as they are concerned. Two of them are cakewalks. And after that, who cares? Because the program's back. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure that that's what the kind of program that I want because I'm also hearing Michigan people calling into radio stations and saying, my fan base is driving me crazy right now. How can we be saying Michigan versus everybody and then 30 seconds later saying Michigan should be America's team? I'm not making that up. That's a Jim Harbaugh quote, Mm -hmm. and which I think is actually expert trolling because I don't think he can possibly believe that. But Michigan versus everybody and also America's team cannot simultaneously be true. Mm -hmm. That is a great point. Um, they also said that the suspension might cause uh, irreparable damage to the school and the uh... Uh, students irreparable because because that is the legal standard for a legal injunction it still makes me laugh because so many teams schools have had coaches fired for scandals way worse than this and they've recovered less than this yeah yeah exactly so it just makes me laugh i mean never mind i'm not gonna bring them up but yeah so speaking of uh the scandal let's pivot to the nfl because i think um actually it's not me i'm parroting what you said earlier one of the big losers of the cheating scandal might be the Carolina Panthers because after watching Stroud dominate the Bengal, uh, the Bengals defense, more on that later, Thursday night football kicked off the week with Bryce Young getting suffocated by the Chicago Bears in the toilet bowl where both teams are holding a number one pick for Chicago in the top five. And Bryce Young has, and his cast is that offense has been rough. 
And with the way C.J. Stroud's playing right now, it is becoming more and more clear Carolina traded up for the wrong quarterback. And if you recall, the big knock on C.J. Stroud when he went into the draft was he can't win the big one. But now, putting on my revisionist history hat, he Stroud has been very good in the NFL against their defenses. He did really good against Georgia's defense. And in the last two years of him starting, the two teams he two games he struggled in was the second half specifically of the two Michigan games. So it looks like potentially the scouts were completely thrown off on how good CJ Stroud was because the defense he was playing against in two of his biggest games basically knew every play he was calling, which makes it a lot harder to play quarterback. So, you think? Yeah. Yeah. Although I did talk, tell this theory to my buddy, David, he's a Carolina Panthers fan. And he said, we're giving Carolina Panthers scouting too much credit to think that they would have made the right decision in the first place. And it, even with that information, that's more of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean, no, pretty much for sure. The Michigan cheated. We've established the, there is some pretty compelling evidence that Michigan benefited strongly, such as their second half scoring, where they were like, what, 60-something to three against Penn State, Ohio State, somebody else in the second half, Mm -hmm. where it was close. We talked about Michigan going from a 500 against the spread team to like a 75% against the spread team Yeah, once the cheating started. So yeah, we know this happened. Then they start to become hidden victims. And one of those is C.J. Stroud. And by extension, the uh, Panthers, who traded up for Young because they thought he was going to be the more complete and more intangible quarterback. Which gets me to the next point, because the the Panthers are a train wreck right now. So what I want to kind of get your opinion on is how much of this disaster is Young? How much is... the supporting cast, and how much is Frank Reich? Ooh, a blame pie. So I'm going to start by saying, despite Stroud balling out and getting the keys handed to him and Young not performing well, we've seen stuff like this before with uh, Mitchell Trubisky's first year, uh, Trevor Lawrence's first year under Urban Meyer, uh, Golf's first year, if you remember that, under Jeff Fisher. We've seen a lot of first-round quarterbacks not look great as a rookie. I think even the great Josh Allen has struggled a lot. And then a new coach Manning and Drew Brees both struggle. Two other even better examples because they're Hall of Famers. Um, So I don't put a lot of stock on the young, pun intended, first year starting quarterback as a rookie being thrown to the fire as he's adjusting to it. I think that the coaching staff is the adult in the room and they need to be smart enough to be able to put together a game plan that uh, makes it easier for them. Like we saw early Russell Wilson, early Dak Prescott, early Phillip Rivers. They got to lean on the run, lean into play action and pass when the defense wasn't expecting passes. And they were, quote, game managers for a couple of years before they became, you know, all pros. And I think that, you know, a better coaching staff could have done something similar with Bryce Young and gotten better play out of him. I don't think he would have been as good as C.J. Stroud is this year because apparently C.J. Stroud might be the greatest of all time. Just kidding. I'm going. That's my home. But not by much. Yeah, exactly. You're not kidding by much. I mean, he's front runner for rookie of the year offensively. And even in the MVP candidate uh, conversation, last one to do that was uh, Jim Brown. 
So what's your take? Is it what is your take? Is it Bryce Young, the supporting cast, or Frank Reich? I, I'm putting more of the blame on Frank Reich and less of the blame on Young. I also the, the supporting cast isn't great, but we've seen a lot of quarterbacks go into bad situations and look better than this. Well, that is true. Um, this blame pie is probably fifty percent Frank Reich which includes a big chunk of Young's share of the blame pie because he's just in there trying and doing too much too early. 40% supporting cast, 10% Young not ready. But, you know, that's if and that's generous. That might be the biggest possible slice for Young just because so much of what he's being asked to do is unrealistic based on the supporting cast. Yeah, well, the good news for the Bears fans is they finally won the toilet bowl with no incentive to lose. And um, it was an interesting game because I did end up getting to watch it. My brother got in from the airport early enough that we watched it. And uh, they started off losing early because of a revenge game of uh, Amir Smith-Marset uh, housing a punt who was a brief time as a Bear. He was drafted by the Vikings in the fifth round. And got cut, picked up by the Bears, lost them a game by fumbling a ball in his like one snap and got cut and he's bounced around. But uh, so it must have been fun for him getting that touchdown. But that was the only touchdown of the game for the Panthers. The Bears defense looked pretty good. I don't know. What's your take on, was it the offense of the Panthers or the Bears defense that was doing the job? Because I will say, Montez Sweat, new uh, incoming second game as a Bear, had seven pressures in a, in that game, which is the most for Bear defensive uh, lineman since two, 2019. So pretty good. Much, he's already returned better on that second round than Chip Claypool did in a year and a half. Yeah, Montez Sweat has been incredible. He's been you know, maybe the best defensive lineman they've had since Khalil Mack. Mm-hmm. And you know, at, at a similar position and with similar impact on games. I mean, Sweat is the real deal. He's ready to play. And yeah. it's time for everybody else to step up around him. Uh, the Bears' defense, I'm not going to say is a top 10 unit, but they definitely overmatched Carolina. There is, There's no doubt. And to me, like, I, I think that, whether it's the Carolina team being really bad or the Bears defense starting to gel and show signs of improvement, either way, it's a win for Bears fans because it'll make the season more fun to watch, whether they're rooting for the number one pick with the Panthers or rooting just to see signs of life from the Bears defense, which is uh, nice to see because we are a defensive town. Yeah, that is the truth. I remember way back in the summer, we were, or I especially was making the case that the Bears, from a talent development standpoint, are a year behind the Lions. Yes. Now, I don't know if they still are with all of the sort of instability that we've seen, but, I mean, the Lions at one point last year were, what, one and six? Mm -hmm. So there were people publicly questioning and calling for you know, Dan Campbell, and you couldn't blame them. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is where it starts to turn around for the bears. I hope so. And the other thing too, is they've won two out of four games with Tyson Bajent, ba- T-Bag as a starting quarterback, Tyson Bajent. <laughs> and uh, he has been a solid backup. Like, I mean, we got really off the rails, excited after week one, then they got two down on him after week two, but he is a undrafted rookie free agent who has been competent. Now, 
with the team kind of rounding into focus with the running game and the defense looking pretty good. And we saw what fields was doing with DJ more the last couple of games before fields got hurt. This I'm not, it could be a really fun end of the season for the bears that I'm looking forward to watching and look at the schedule. The next four games are pretty tough. They got a bye week. They got, um, that's not a tough game. Uh, they got two games against Detroit and I think one against, uh, the Vikings. And I forget what the fourth one, but it's a tough one, but then they end the season. They have three winnable games. And honestly, if the bears could win, go four and three down the stretch and get to seven wins, I think that'll be a fun way to end the season, especially if they're showing hope on the, the defensive front, and the um and uh Justin Fields and hopefully we can throw a Marvin Harrison in there next year and see what happens. Yeah, I mean if you look at it, Bacon is two and one against teams that the Bears are anywhere close to roster wise. Yeah, I'm taking the Chargers out of there, but um, <laughs> yeah. So just real quick, it's Detroit twice, Minnesota, and then Cleveland. That's the toughest part. The Bears almost beat. Minnesota that's when I was thinking that was close and then they got Arizona Atlanta and Green Bay Arizona might be the friskiest of those with the return of uh, Kyler Murray whereas the uh, uh, Falcon season starting to slip away and we can talk more about the Packers later yes in fact we will but first we're going to talk about the uh, gift from the United States to Germany the most brutal international game in the history of international games the Colts at quote unquote the Patriots. You think this Happy is Veterans s- Day have a lousy football game. I think this is gonna kick off World War Three of <laughs> anger. Like, oh my God. Just talking about antagonizing him. That was brutal. What was that seven to ten to six was the final? <laughs> that is correct. It was must flee TV. I just okay. So we'll start with the Colts. Good to see Jonathan Taylor finally taking over that bell cow role that he had in the previous seasons. Uh, He looked okay. He doesn't look like he's back all the way, but he's getting all of it. I'm kind of, I'm a little surprised they pushed um, Moss's side completely like that because Moss has been playing well. And it looks like there's some legitimacy to uh, Jonathan Taylor being hurt when he went on IR. It wasn't just a uh, posturing for his contract. Because he looks, he doesn't look like he's quite there yet, but he's on his way back. What's your take? Well, yeah, I mean, this was also very much a ball control game on both sides. The Patriots should run more because they had legit production on that side of the ball. So you had two teams that both wanted to run it, and so naturally you ended up with a shorter game. I don't think that the NFL was especially happy that they brought football back to 1967, but. I don't think it was that modern. <laughs> Sorry. Did football have a dead ball era? 67 <laughs> might have been more fun because they might have been able to watch Jim Brown and Gail Sayers. <laughs> okay, fair. I'm just joking, um, but uh, I know what you mean. Instead of the great zombie whatever, who's whoever's running for Maybe it Patriots. Maybe a rugby game, you know? Maybe it wasn't so bad. But, you know, I got to give credit to some of the defense, though. Uh, Zaire Franklin has been just on fire as a tackler this year. He had 15 tackles this previous game, a forced fumble that would have been possibly a huge play, except there were no huge plays. Um, That's fair. <laughs> and all that led to Mac Jones publicly questioning his coaching. 
at least subtly. Do you remember what he said specifically? It, it was basically something to the effect of, you know, it was something to do with the play calling in particular well, on the offense. I thought that the play calling was supposed to be magically good without Matt Patricia, uh, defensive mastermind, calling the plays like he was last year. And now they have a, quote, competent play caller who, you know, last coached in the NFL 20 years ago for the Patriots as an offensive play coordinator. I think we forgot one very, very important metric here. And that's the the guy who hired Matt Patricia is still the head coach. Yeah. And by the way, Bill O'Brien actually coached in the NFL much more recently than that, including a lot of playoff games and double digit wins uh, totals as the head coach of the Houston Texans. But I'm being a little parabolic on my hate of the uh, coordinator. But yeah, so what's your take on uh, Bill Belichick? Are you hearing any rumors out of uh, that front? Well, we are definitely stepping into rumor and innuendo uh, territory, which is not where I usually like to deal. But ESPN's uh, Orlovsky was spreading information that he had heard that the Patriots and Belichick were going to be separating after the season mutually. Oh, And then Bill Belichick was going directly into another head coaching job. Well, I'd like to see what he could do in Los Angeles coaching the Chargers. (laughs) They still have a coach, but you know. Um, It's interesting, too, because I I was listening to the Bill Simmons podcast with Cousin Sal, and they mentioned that the end of season live over under betting lines were taken removed for the Patriots uh, from the Vegas betting or FanDuel or whatever. So that's usually a sign that they're expecting a coaching change, too. So I thought that was interesting timing of the rumors. Yeah, the the long term betting lines. Yeah, the long term betting lines. Exactly. So. Okay. yeah. Um, I mean, the Patriots haven't been two and eight, I think, under craft. So, mm-hmm. you know, there the natives might be getting a little restless. Well, I'm, I think it's interesting at Mac Jones publicly questioning the coaches. I mean, the guy was literally benched in the middle of a winning game. You or not a winning game, but a winnable game, a one score game, which is very rare, especially for a first rounder halfway through his rookie contract. So. Was that in time for her to watch Bailey Zappi attempt a fake spike pass that gets picked? Yes. (laughs) Apparently he didn't pull off the fake spike because he didn't sell it on anybody. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I see uh, he is available in the uh, Mac Jones is available in my dynasty league and nobody's picked him up him and him as well as uh, Zach Zach Wilson. So that's that's pretty telling about how bad his season's going. I'll just leave it at that. But he was can be completed 15 to 20 passes for 170 yards, which is interesting that he was benched because Zappy was three for seven for 25. It's not like he did any better. So but he's the fall guy kind of like um the Ken Dorsey in Buffalo right now. Yeah. Seems like every fan base needs a scapegoat. And with the with the Patriots are playing, they're going to have a top five pick and a new quarterback to, to hang their hopes on. So I'm not surprised that they would change the coaching too. They might. Oh, speaking of teams that wanted to run it a ton, Pittsburgh partied like it was 1989 <laughs> with 35 runs against 23 passes to beat the Packers the last time the Packers won in Pittsburgh, their quarterback was Bart Starr. Wow. 
Do you think this will help make George Pickens feel better since he was the lead receiver catching four passes for 45 yards? I think he, when he threw his tantrum, he caught three passes for like 35. So he got one more. Um, he didn't, I don't think he had the drop touch or the drop touchdown pass where he didn't, you know, toe tap the line, which by the way, send George Pickin highlights of, um, Cortland Sutton's catch where he toe dragged in a way that you thought there was no way he could catch the ball. Whereas Pickens had like 10 yards of space when he went out of bounds two weeks ago when he threw the tantrum, but you know, not, I'm not annoyed by it or anything. Um, <laughs> but it's time yeah. for Giante Johnson to blow up. Cause he only had one catch. Yep, under 20 yards. That's how the Steelers receivers roll, all divas. Yeah, but the running game was a thing for the first time in a while. Both of their running backs did well. I was going to say, don't look now. Najee is a top 10 half-point PPR since the bye, and Jalen Warren is top 20 half-point PPR in fantasy football, by the way. So they have definitely started to lean into the run more, and it's working. They won again. Um I'm going to say they also continue to keep their streak alive by getting outgained in a win. I think they've gotten outgained in every game this season and are six and three now. <laughs> they've won six of those games. Now, I'm going to say um, it was a little bit, it's a little bit much in this game to throw that on because when the, the Steelers had a lead and they had the yardage game, they were actually outgaining Green Bay by 75 yards with a couple minutes left in the game. But Jordan Love engineered back-to-back 60-plus-yard drives to throw interceptions in the end zone. And I think that, to be honest, this might have been good coaching on the defense because returning to the Green Bay side, watching Jordan Love, he's at his best when he is pushing the ball downfield making big plays, which he made a decent amount of them in that game. But with the game on the line, the bend up but that but don't break defense looked great because I'm watching this game just thinking it's only a matter of time before Jordan Love throws an errant pass into the hands of the Steelers. And the first interception was, you know, questionable forcing the ball into the, uh, you know, it was a good, I, I actually say it might be good defense where they tried to run an out and up, which is kind of funny with the game on the line, knowing they're trying to get in the end zone. Um, who is uh, Pat, Pat, Patrick Peterson, the veteran cornerback pickup, did not bite on it. He ran stride for stride with a receiver and tipped the ball into the hands of the safety for the first interception. Second interception with the game really close to the end. I think both of them were within three minutes of the end of the game. Um, was more on Jordan Love just throwing it up. And the reason why I'm bringing this up, this is, I believe, three games in a row where Jordan Love through inter- game-ending interceptions. So he's basically thrown four game-losing interception- game interceptions at the end of the game uh, in only three games. It's actually pretty impressive when you really think about the fact that he managed to do it four times in three games now. Um, so I think the panic meter for Jordan Love is starting to uh, ratchet up up in Green Bay and it's only going to get colder and colder as the season goes on and it's going to get worse and worse for this. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, to me the the most the thing that's got to improve is Jordan Love right now has absolutely no chemistry with Christian Watson. Both of those end zone interceptions in the fourth quarter were targeting Christian Watson who ended the game with I think two catches and he yeah he missed the first three weeks and they've had their bye but Christian Watson is at I think 14 catches for the year 
mm-hmm. for yeah. the year. And just real quick, it was within th- they were both within three minutes and thirty seconds of the game ending. Yikes! That's yeah, a Christian, yikes. Christian Watson two two catches for twenty three yards on seven targets, and it's been brutal. I mean, I'm seeing him at the top of uh, Christian Watson. I'm seeing at the top of drop list for fantasy football at this point, and a lot of people thought he would be a game winner because he is so fast and explosive. But for whatever reason, you can't get on the same page with Jordan Love. Mm-hmm. May, you know, is it is it Watson? Is he running bad routes? I mean, I don't know. That is a great question. It might not, you know, the quarterbacks are always the poster boy fall boys, but they also get too much glory when wins or when things are going well. And that is a good question. Maybe the much ballyhooed young receivers that we talk about aren't doing as well. And in Christian Watson's events too, he's been a lot of, he's been injured a lot. So he doesn't, he hasn't had a lot of time to build chemistry with Jordan Love because he was building it with Aaron Rodgers last year when he was hurt a lot too. This is the flaw, I think, to the way that the Green Bay Packers have built up this core, which in three years, they might all be really fantastic players, Love and all these receivers. Mm-hmm. But for right now, who's the veteran? Who are these guys learning from? There is no guy on the roster that is the the established locker room presence. They only have each other to figure it out with and to learn from coaches. And I want to take a quick interjection. We talked about the Panthers supporting staff, but Adam Thielen as a veteran has been playing really well. Could you imagine if the Packers had paid that $4 million or $5 million for the one-year contract and put, put him on this roster? That's and the have, kind of presence they needed. And have Thielen teach all these young guys how to run NFL routes and get on page, have yep. the presence on the field and all the little things that you've got to do to help your team succeed. I think that would have gone a long ways to help both Jordan Love develop and the receivers develop for this. It's year. not too late, although we are working on too late for this year in a big hurry. Mm-hmm. So the game ended as a uh, is Green Bay's second year lineman Zach Tom basically nearly ignited a brawl on the sideline. What was your take on that? That seemed a lot of frustration to me. I, I would I would agree. Any other field of life, and that guy's getting fired or going to jail but this is the nfl because having watched that play the cornerback really wasn't hot dogging that much he saw zach tom coming and he veered off and ran out of bounds towards his sideline and zach tom just kept coming put him right on his butt through you know through the back side of the the bench area and uh yeah it, it's pretty brutal when you start something in front of someone else's line. I will say I give Green Bay credit for being well coached and the fact that his other offensive lineman ran in and grabbed Zach Tom and pulled him out of there and helped defuse the situation or else that could have been pretty ugly. In my Why, opinion. just because he was trying to pick a fight with the entire other team? <laughs> yeah, he not only would have lost that fight, likely, but he probably would have got suspended for it or at least fined. And he might get fined anyways, but I think they did him a favor. They were good teammates by pulling yeah, him out as, of there. Not as much of a fine as they would have gotten if he would have just, you know, gotten in a fist fight. Exactly. So one downer note to end on, uh, linebacker Quan Alexander for the Pittsburgh Steelers torn his Achilles, going back to the Achilles ACL, you know, ligament tear damage or uh, epi- epidemic that we're seeing in the NFL this year, at least seemingly too. So that was 
sad. You hate to see that, especially going into a big game against Cleveland next week. But. I miss when it was this year's Achilles injury instead of this week's. I know, right? I mean, that's three in a row now where we've had at least one to two high, fairly high major, mm-hmm. major Achilles tears. Agreed. So shall we uh, work our way from uh, the Three River Stadium up the Ohio River, just like we did last week from uh, Pittsburgh to Cincinnati, where the C.J. Stroud-led, aforementioned C.J. Stroud-led Houston Texans pulled off a major upset against the Bengals, who were clicking. Yeah, uh, well, for the most part. I'm going to start with Cincinnati here. And they have had, especially in their losses, a lot of slow starts. But it's continued even in this section where Joe Burrow has been healthy. Mm. So it's starting to become problematic. They're not, you know, they're playing from behind and not running as much as they wanted and getting in trouble. And this time it bit them. This time it really bit them because you had C.J. Stroud, who is absolutely, you know, the most conservative thing I can say is he's absolutely on fire right now. Mm -hmm. And the Bengals get down. All of a sudden, here comes C.J. Stroud with 20 straight points. Yeah. Now what are you going to do? Well, I will say... I don't think the loss was as bad as, you know, they're getting painted as, because, I mean, C.J. Stroud's heroics were amazing. Uh, Let's not forget that the Bengals did not have T. Higgins in that game, and Jamar Chase hadn't practiced all week due to injury or illness. And watching that game, Jamar Chase put up pretty good stat lines, but he did not look like Jamar Chase uh, that that we'd seen the previous couple weeks. So I think he was slowing a little bit, which I think added that slow start. And then we saw the running game was their usual high volume, low efficiency. Joe Mixon found the end zone, but you know, Mixon's had a good career, but it's time to get a younger guy to at least take some of the load off of Mixon. I think when he plays a little less, he's a little bit more explosive at this stage in his career. I think you could prolong his career by bringing a compliment in my opinion. Um, Especially one that has more home run hitting speed at this point. Mixon's reliable and, um, you know, but I think you could bring in someone like a, uh, you know, like that Baltimore kid or the uh, A-chain or something who just houses everything, you know, was that Mitchell? But, uh, but yeah, so I I don't think it was that bad. And then not forget to Barrow did lead his own heroics after falling behind. Uh, He led him back. Um, Tyler Boyd dropped a touchdown pass that, you know, could have been a game winner. Um, but CJ Stroud led him down for the game winning field goal anyways. And with the way he was playing, they, they might've won that game regardless. Yeah. I I don't want to give the impression that I think the Bengals stunk out and lost the game because of that. No, the Texans straight up beat a soup Bengals team that we expect to be a Super Bowl contender. And and that's why the deep, the Cincinnati Bengals defense had been playing very well and nobody's really ripping them for it because Texans offense was just that good. And there's no, there's no real defense for a good offense at that point. You know, there's always something that can be a defense. If you ever talk to a defensive coordinator, they know this. And I think that was just a more impressive victory by the Texans than it lost for the Bengals. So it sucks because the Bengals had the slow start. So they need wins because them along with the bills are, you know, still looking the outside looking in. I think they might be actually in the playoffs right now. All four teams might be, or at least they're close, but each game matters and they got a big one coming up more on that later. Yeah, they do. But from the Cincinnati side, Stroud is the real deal. 
Yes. This is going at this point. If you take out his first two NFL games, this has been an extremely high powered offense every single game uh, where they throw the ball a ton. And he has been both efficient and effective. What else can you ask for? And he was five and four and they are, I believe are ahead of the Bengals right now for the playoffs. And they have the tiebreaker that this, this game could actually decide a playoff wild card, not to put my Bengals fans, friends in a panic over this, but it's more about, but I, but especially if you look at the division, the Texans are in, I don't think they're going away. Yeah. Yeah, And at this point, I'm not sure there's another player or even group of players in the AFC South that I would trade Stroud for. As of right now, the wild card race is Pittsburgh one, Cleveland two, Houston three, Cincinnati four due to tiebreaker because they lost head to head to Houston. So this this actually is a pretty big win or big big loss, I should say, for the Bengals. But there's still a lot of games to be played and they have a they have a lot of NSC, AFC North games where they can climb ahead. Because remember, if they're eighth place, they're behind three guys in their own division. So they still have a lot of um, – they control their own destiny as the oxymoron goes, right? Yes. That is the old saying. But speaking of old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't laugh when he breaks his leg trying to get there. Injuries were a huge story for the Saints and the Vikings. I just lost my co-host to – so morbid morbid. (laughs) shocking but injuries were a huge story for the saints and the vikings the vikings did uh play a very very good game here their juju continues and they beat the saints in one that was really entertaining to watch as the precursor uh here in detroit tv for the lions game especially for the saints you had Carr knocked out after just a massive hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it looked cool. like the shoulder avoided major damage now that we are a couple days beyond the game, but we're still in concussion protocol. We'll see. In came Jameis Winston, who definitely energized the same offense, but then turned around and threw two late picks in the most Jameis Winston game that he can do. I mean, this is a game where he played one half and threw two touchdowns and two interceptions. I mean, it was – and the Jameis t- – one of the touchdowns, the one too, I think it was uh, A.T. Perry, was the classic, no, 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 yes. No, 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 yes. Like the guy that throws the three-pointer up from exactly. 45 feet. No, then, no, 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 yes. And then as a fantasy owner, a lot of people then added thinking it was to uh, Chris Olave, and then Chris Olave runs in at the end of the game, and then – there was another. Wait, who did he throw it to? No, <laughs> nobody. Yeah, the, wrong but jersey. It was, but it was still exactly. But it was still. Yeah. It was still. It was. Yeah. He. I love having Jameis Winston back in the NFL. He's made a lot of more fun, especially compared to Derek Carr, who's yeah. probably one of the blandest, boringest quarterbacks I can watch. Um, and yeah, to me, Jameis Winston is not necessarily the most prolific t- passer. He is not the most intelligent. He is not the most talented but he will play the most football yes it, he plays football the hardest it's the joke that i heard when he his last year in tampa before he paved the way for uh, tom brady to come there was when he put up five thousand yards 30 touchdowns and 30 interceptions was he is the most exciting quarterback to watch 
not for anybody watching the game because any play could be a touchdown for either team, no matter where they are on the field. And that makes every game exciting. Like, and the NFL's first 30, 30 man. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, (laughs) it's like watching playoff baseball. That's like a one run game. You're like, man, this next pitch could be an out or a home run. Any, every play of the game, you know, you, you, you just locked in and I love having Jameis back in my life. And I hope he, continues to be the starter no offense to this Derek Carr you got your money you'll, you'll be fine but Damus Winston just makes the games much more fun um unfortunately another injury uh Alexander Madison got knocked out with a concussion left early um generally we see the concussions I think other than Brock Purdy coming back there seems to be an unwritten rule where if you get a concussion you're just out for the next season so or the next week I should say uh Ty Chandler say, scare a person Sorry about that. Uh, Ty Chandler came in in relief for Madison and Cam Akers, who, you know, Achilles gate continues. Um, and he looked pretty solid. His final stats were just three yards per carry, which didn't look good. But he looks like he's got some juice and tackle breaking. He seems to be a little bit like Jameis Winston, more exciting to watch than his uh, the starter was. Um, on the flip side, on, on other good news for um the Vikings coming in and also an injury relief was Josh Dobbs, who just continues to be awesome. I mean, he engineers Minnesota to back-to-back wins and continues to breathe down the neck of uh, your Detroit lions for the uh, division. If it weren't for Josh Dobbs, you guys would have already clinched. (laughs) Yeah. Dobbs is officially a problem for opposing defenses. It's amazing. Uh, that He was available over and over and over again. I mean, he was he's showing himself to be with all of these weapons that he's got in Minnesota, just a brilliant uh, offensive mind who has enough mobility to be slippery. And that's a very dangerous combination. Is he going to break 40 yard runs? No, he's not Lamar Jackson, but he always has his eyes downfield. And routinely picking up third and five with a eight yard scamper is real is brutally backbreaking on defenses and demoralizing. You know, and he had a forty four yards and another touchdown on the ground, and uh, he also knew to find T.J. Hawkinson, who put, picked up eleven catches for one hundred and thirty four yards and a touchdown of his own. So I mean, he's he's been doing pretty well, and uh, Vikings legitimately in the playoff hunt at this point now after you know a rough start i think they were one and four two and four before they got went on their winning streak and now they're six and four yeah they are six and four actually believe it or not without just and undefeated without justin jefferson if you had that one picked <laughs> yeah they started uh, one and four five game yeah. winning streak unbelievable Against, um yeah. oops the uh I do want to make mention of two major injuries for the Saints. And that's Lattimore and Michael Thomas, who both look to have picked up pretty significant injuries. Ooh, do you know what those were? Uh, let's see. Oh, it's still pending. It just says long term. Um, I will say maybe uh, Michael Thomas just doesn't want to play for Derek Carr because he'd rather get arrested. Like the memes that go around say, go look it up. <laughs> it's funny. Um, uh, some kind, Something to do with a knee. Oh, um, I don't know exactly for Michael Thomas. That's a shame because that misdiagnosed foot kept him out for a couple of years and he was arguably the best receiver in football for years, but he's kind of had a rough road to get back on the field over the last three years. Yeah. Marshall Latimer, yeah. One of the best cornerbacks in the game, arguably. 
So that'd be a huge blow to the currently division leading um, Saints. Yeah, the the Vikings coaching staff, who I have to give a lot of credit to this turnaround to, is playing this pretty close to the vest here. They're just saying, or uh, excuse me, the Saints coaching, who has been much more mediocre, has <laughs> yeah. been basically just saying that the injuries are significant and leaving it at that. I haven't heard anything beyond that since. The one thing that has definitely fueled a big chunk of this turnaround is how successful the Vikings have been blitzing. They blitz a ton. They're one of the most heaviest blitzing defenses in all the NFL. And over this five-game streak especially, they've been getting home a lot. Maybe not a sack, but they've been constantly in the face of the opposing quarterbacks. Well, that's uh, you're seeing, uh, I believe Brian Flores was the big free agent pickup uh, at defensive coordinator, and he has been great at every other stop in Pittsburgh and New England. So it shouldn't be no surprise that he's doing well. A guy that um, was allegedly gotten uh, fired as a head coach because he was winning too many games for the Dolphins. <laughs> if you remember that, <laughs> that yeah. scandal from years ago. Um, since apparently uh, will not be fired for winning too many games as a defensive coordinator. Apparently he's doing a good job. So I think Minnesota will appreciate that. It, we'll see how well this strategy on defense holds up when they start playing teams with really, really good offensive lines. I was going to say that usually also veteran quarterbacks are better at taking advantage of blitzes than um, young ones. Cause I was looking at the list. It was like the winning streaks against like Chicago and the Minnesota upstate over San Francisco was big, but it was also against a second year starting quarterback that they maybe had been able to trick with a couple of blitzes, et cetera. So it'll be interesting to see how it holds up. I agree. But for now it's getting wins, six wins is six wins. So. Exactly. Speaking of teams that are stacking up wins. How about the Browns at the Ravens? Uh, I do have to say so much for that. This game might be three, nothing theory. Yeah, that was shockingly. I was expecting a defensive game too. Then ended up being one of the most exciting games where the Ravens went up big early and then the Browns came stamp <laughs> stampeding back and winning the game at the end of it. Um, What's your quick take on this epic comeback? Was it more Browns? Was it more uh, Ravens? What's your kind of take on this? this? I think this was Watson, at least for today, living up to his contract. The stats aren't going to show it, but at the end of the game, when it was time to make up ground, he was throwing dimes. Now, I don't have the first half, second half splits ahead of me. But I believe he was something like 14 for 14 in the second half during the comeback. And his overall stats for the game were terrible. So you can do that math when you're 14 for 14 in the second half, but you're 20 for 34 for the game. I don't quote me on the 14 for 40. It was something like that. But that means he was completely like 20% of his passes, including an interception on like the first throw of the game to a, you know, safety Kyle Hamilton. So, and I think that was more the defense that did it than, uh, you know, Deshaun Watson. So I think if I'm a Browns fan, that was really the biggest difference between the first and the second half was, I think it was almost purely engineered by Watson playing well. And this is the first time as a Browns fan over the last two years, since you've gotten him that, it might have led, legitimately led to excitement, especially because it came to a win against, a, you know, the former Browns. Yeah, I mean, it was like. just, a, just an epic comeback. This game was 31-17 Ravens with 9.06 to go in the fourth. And it ended up being 33-31 Browns. So the Ravens didn't score again. 
the Browns scored what two touchdowns basically in a field goal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, they did a good job. I mean, Elijah Moore finally found the end zone. And Joku had some really good highlight plays at tight end. Uh, Jerome Ford had broke 100 yards with 6.3 yards per carry. And that's something we've been talking about, the Ford versus Hunt. It looks like Ford's the main guy now, but he gives up the goal line carries to Kareem Hunt, who punched one in um, on his 10 carries for 32 yards. Yeah. Yeah, looking between the statistics here, there's some interesting takeaways. First of all, the Browns' offensive passing game, the target volume is concentrating into fewer guys. Essentially, this offense, from a passing perspective, runs through Amari Cooper, David Njoku, and Elijah Moore. And everybody else is just picking up loose change. That's a pretty significant change when they were trying to throw it to seven or eight different receivers before. Now they're not. They're focusing on their top guys. They're the only three that got more than than one target this game. And I agree. It's easier to build chemistry with the if you throw to the guy the same guys over and over again. You know what they're gonna. You know how they're gonna break the routes off, etc. And I think that's a good uh, sign for them getting better. Plus, they're just better players than the bench players. <laughs> yes, it's a natural development. Exactly. The other thing that jumped. Philly. The other thing that jumped out at me was the ball control for the Browns. The Ravens were only ran 47 offensive plays. The Browns ran 70. That's backwards considering the Ravens were up to start the game. Usually that team, you know, leans on the win you know, or le- the victory. <clears throat> exactly, yeah. But I looked at it and I was like, wait a minute. How did the running backs for the Ravens only get eight and two and three rushes plus a couple for Lamar. And then I looked and I saw, Oh, because the Browns had the ball the entire game because there's 17 carries for Jerome Ford and another 10 for Kareem hunt. And Watson had eight himself. I don't know how many of those were scrambles, but he's using it to move the chain and control the ball. Exactly. This is what the Browns thought they were buying when they threw a ton of money at Deshaun Watson. So, yeah, the Browns at this point have every reason to be excited because that defense is no joke. That's always going to be there. And if you get this Deshaun Watson with the weapons that he's got on top of that, yeah, they're, oh. they're going to be a significant problem. Agreed. Lastly, on to the later game, the afternoon game, the Lions at the Chargers, and I am... So happy as a Lions fan to be talking about this game. We got an old fashioned Western shootout. <laughs> yeah. Imagine which you can go with that. A cold, silent shootist called <laughs> Jared. Yeah. This was the most not SOL game, not same old Lions that you could possibly have imagined. Same old Lions would have lost, the, they would have gotten blown out in this game. Because the defense stunk out the place. They got zero pressure all game long. They couldn't get a stop. Last team with the ball, Dan Campbell with some, let's call it gutsy decisions. Because this is a family podcast. And (laughs) they ended up with the ball at the end of the game and kicked the field goal and walked home a winner. The commentators gushed. The local Detroiters freaked out because... They didn't add any defensive help. And they're like, oh, my gosh, we got to stop somebody. Dude, I'm enjoying this. 
I haven't seen this in 30 years of being a Lions fan. I I think it was kind of a passing of the torch game to me um, that we have uh, the best route runner in the game coming out of nowhere to take the game by storm with Keenan Allen uh, getting one upped in his home stadium by Amon Ra St. Brown, the sun God, who is best comp in the NFL was probably Keenan Allen. And um, they both put on a show, to be honest. I mean, I say that Amon Ross won up them because he got the win, but Keenan Allen had 175 and two touchdowns. Amon Ra had 150 and a touchdown. I mean, that was amazing for two guys who weren't considered the best receivers in the draft and they weren't known for their 40 time or their speed or their height or whatever, you know? So I love watching those guys play. It was years ago when we had the conversation about wide receivers who have a problem with their hands. And you flipped out and were like, you're a professional pass catcher. Every NFL wide receiver's strength should be his hands. Thank you. Well, guess what? The, those two receivers are. They're probably the best hands in the NFL, best route runners. They're complete receivers. They don't have to be 6'6 six, six and 250 pounds of bulging muscle with 4.3 speed. Mm-hmm. They're just really good at being receivers. It's it's weird how getting open and catching the ball reliably leads to Pro Bowl status. It's not that hard. Huh. I mean, it is because we don't see these guys often, <laughs> you know, but it was Imagine good to see. That. I liked watching. I liked I liked watching that, you know, and um, Jameer Gibbs is starting to take over the role. I mean, Montgomery had end up with more yards, but because he because, you know, just like we scripted it, Jameer Gibbs ran two short yard touchdowns and Montgomery breaks a 75 yarder. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of interesting, a little role reversal there. Both of them had great games, but uh, Gibbs, he has the uh, receiving role locked up. He basically comes in. It looked like they were kind of trading drives, and then on Montgomery drives, if it was passing situation or third down, Gibbs would come in for him. But when Gibbs was in, he just had the whole drive to himself, and he kept his uh, goal line, whereas in the previous uh games Montgomery might come in for the goal line so if you are a fan of Gibbs and first round draft capital and explosive running plays that is a good sign for you it seems like Dan Campbell uh, figured out get the ball to your explosive rookie first round running back long before um, Arthur Smith did in Atlanta or maybe in the same week I don't know but it worked out great they both looked awesome I mean they were both upgrades then uh, over Swift and uh Jamal Williams, who's having a tough year in New Orleans at this point. I completely forgot he was in the NFL. Um, oh, man, yeah. That was rough. Uh, but speaking of guys that you forget were in the NFL, Jamison Williams <laughs> had a touchdown <laughs> called back on a penalty that wasn't his, which was kind of a tough penalty. Uh, he caught a just caught a quick screen and scampered in. But his big play was he had the breakout block on that 75-yard Montgomery play and he was like 40 yards downfield so he like jamison williams speed level sprinted to like wipe some dude out and that was what finally sprung Mm -hmm. that's what was that's what sealed the score so that is really good to see because um his work ethic was kind of one of his question marks. So if he's going to get down and earn, you know, points with uh, Danny Campbell by making plays like that, he's going to get on the field more and he's going to start getting more chances to develop, which will be huge. If he could be the cherry on top for a Super Bowl contending. And I got to say, 
yeah, his body language real quick has totally changed to somebody mm-hmm. that will do all of the little things. And I think that's why we're seeing more of him. But go and ahead. I think um, this might be too soon to crown this, but Jared Goff looks like one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. He went toe to toe with Justin Herbert, who, you know, the uh, analytics darling, big arm, you know, highly drafted first rounder. I mean, get, don't get me wrong. Jared Goff was a one first rounder. one overall. Yeah, he two. was a one one. But he was also left for dead, thrown, you know, get, you know, scapegoated by Sean McVay in, in LA and in, in package with two first rounders to come to Detroit for Matt Stafford. And he just looked calm and collected and just kept going punch for punch with uh, Justin Herbert. Like he belongs. And he eventually won that game throwing 330 yards and two touchdowns. And I think that was great to see. So that means the lions now um, on the season by your count are one and one against good quarterbacks and still struggling against mobile passers. Oh, and two with mobile quarterbacks because I'm counting uh, Geno Smith as mobile, but not good. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's fair. Well, the good news is you have Josh Jobs to test that theory two more times this year, along with Justin Fields. So you'll get four more shots possible, uh, you know, to prepare you guys for Jalen Hurts in the playoffs. If you, you know, hopefully for Detroit, it's, it'll be the NFC championship game. Yeah. Or, I mean, go with what Romo said that. We have never heard a national commentator say the kind of things about the Lions that Tony Romo said during the national broadcast against the Chargers, where he was saying, this is a team that can win the Super Bowl. This is a team that is a legitimate threat to be a one seed. Look out for them. Mm -hmm. The playoffs might run through Detroit. Especially if they had Chase Young or Montez Sweat across from Aiden Hutchinson. Is that too soon? (laughs) (laughs) I know you're mad about that, so sorry. Yeah, I wasn't exactly throwing chair mad, but oh boy. Anyway, yeah, but it was a win. It was a good win. It was a it was a not a same old Lions win as you said. It was yeah, it was same old Lions is dead. If you're still waiting for bad things to happen for this Lions team, get over it. There are a few hard cases that are like, well, I won't believe it happens till they win a playoff game. Dude, sooner or later the ride is come is going to come to an end, but in the meantime, this is a team that is delivering for the city of Detroit and I'm going to enjoy it. Enjoy the ride. It's going to be fun. I like watching teams get good, you know? Exactly. One of my favorite NBA seasons was watching the golden state warriors first title team before anyone thought they were good. I enjoyed that run. Steve Kerr, former bull head coach of that team. So whatever. I'm not saying you guys are the next golden state warriors. Let's slow down. You know, <laughs> but, but we definitely like got a, a new culture. Yeah. If you, whatever you think is leading the success for your team, let us know. Check out our email at midwestfootballpodcast at gmail.com. Give us your feedback on anything you've heard this episode because we've covered a whole lot of territory today. We've just got one more segment left, and that's our week 11 picks with one more thing. The segment where we focus on just one more thing that we're going to look at for each of these games. We pick our games straight up, not against the spread. Because just, you know, ask the Denver Broncos, this is a tough league to figure. And we're going to start right off with our Thursday night game. We got a big one here. Bengals at Ravens. And both of these teams desperately want to crawl, climb back into the win column right away. I got to say, is this the first, is this the most watchable Thursday night football game? I mean, coming off of the Bears versus the Panthers, (laughs) uh, we have two legitimate Super Bowl contenders 
with featuring two legitimate MVP candidates at quarterback between Smoke and Joe Burrow and Lamar Jackson. <laughs> yeah. So we're you- we're we're transitioning from last week a game that they wanted to flex to Tuesday at three in the morning to a game that they wanted to flex to Sunday night. Yeah. So what do you want to see in this game? What's your one more thing? As uh, I find I, myself time to think of this, because this is a very exciting game. It is a very exciting game. I I want to see how the uh, Bengals passing offense, if they can continue to roll against the tough defense of the Ravens here. The Ravens were a top two defense coming into the game against Cleveland. Uh, the Bengals were trying just trying to keep up with Houston, who turned their defense into chop suey. So it'll be exciting to see if this is an offensive game, which it should be, or if this one becomes a surprise defensive game. So what I want to see is if the uh, game scripts we've seen for both of these teams continue, uh, the Bengals tend to have a, have a tendency to start slow. And I believe the Ravens were um, have a, they have a tendency to start fast. And the last two losses to Pittsburgh and Cleveland, they had pretty good win leads and they lost both of them in the fourth quarter. So this could be a very fun, epic comeback for Joe Burrow uh, in the fourth quarter. And I'm looking to see what happens then. Is that your pick for what happens? Yeah, I'll pick the uh, Bengals to win the game in the fourth quarter. That's exactly where I was going. The Ravens uh, have coughed up a ton of late leads. They'd be the number one overall uh, seed, I think, in the playoffs if they only played NFC teams. But unfortunately, they have to play teams that have seen what they do. So, Bengals. Yep. And the uh, the last two losses were to individual division rivals, Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh won the fourth quarter, fourteen to zero, to win that game. So, and we all yep. we talked about the Browns game already today. Speaking of exactly. the Browns and the Steelers, uh, kicking off the the Sunday um, afternoon games, we got Steelers at the Browns. What's your one more thing on this? I am looking forward to seeing the bad things that this Browns defense does to the Steelers offense. So the chorus of I can already hear the the South Park movie choruses coming from Pittsburgh of Blame Canada. Blame <laughs> Canada. Blame Canada. So I do think the Browns are going to win this game, but never look past the Steelers here. Between yeah, because it's uh my one more thing is going to be to see how Deshaun Watson continues his uh, second half resurgence against the Ravens defense and how he does against the Steelers defense, which is, you know, a top four defense in its own yeah. right. At least as legit as Baltimore. Yes. And, um, you know, we're talking about this. I have to decide between which of these two defenses start my dynasty league. I'll probably start the Browns defense. and I'm going to pick them to win because I think the Browns front four against Matt Canada and Kenny Pickett might be a little bit too scary, even though they've found a good job leaning on the run as of late uh, in Pittsburgh, that is. So I'm going to go with the Browns. Yeah. At home. The Browns are, the Steelers are not going to win with a 35 run, 23 pass breakdown against the Browns. They're just not. Not that front seven. No. So I I am picking the the Browns here. and, And also just to go back to one thing you were saying about Bears versus Lions, which will be a transition. I think the Browns and Steelers are similar and that they were underrated, but I think the Browns are just like a half a season ahead of the rebuild that Pittsburgh's going. Not that they're rebuilding. They're more of a reload. 
But speaking of the Bears and the Browns, we have our rivalry game, the Bears at the Lions. Oh, my. Um, yes. Let the smack talk commence. Yeah. After Hopefully it'll be better than our dynasty or our, our keeper league where our defenses combined for negative eight points and tied each other while scoring <laughs> negative four as our slobber knockers. We had Baker Mayfield versus Sam Howell and Alexander Madison versus uh, <laughs> Noah Brown, which decided the game. And we don't need to talk about who won it, but that's how desperate it was we were him. with. Yep. No, yeah, they're true. So I bring it up. Uh, I believe Joe had what Pat Mahomes on the bench in a bye week. I had Jalen Hurts and AJ Brown. We had a lot. It was a rough bye week and injury. Joe had all of his running backs out. Um, our teams are pretty good. Actually, we're fighting over the number two spot right now, record wise. So props to Raymond, who's running away with the number one seed, although he did get upset. Friend of the podcast, Raymond. Um, but okay. back to upset loss, not upset that he lost. I think he was upset that he lost probably too, but um, well, yeah, that he would be was natural. eight and one going into the week. So the yeah, juggernaut. He can, yeah, he can, uh, he can take a loss or two along the way. Yeah. He, he's, he's got a bit of a cushion. Yeah. Speaking of teams who don't have a bit of a cushion, it is the bears on the road against Detroit in the pre Thanksgiving game. Um, what do you want to see in this game? In this one? Uh, now we've got one of those. Well, first of all, I'm working under the assumption that Justin Fields will not play in this game. Oh, uh, if that happens, then the Lions just need to take care of business. Don't do anything stupid, which is basically what I'm looking to see is do we av- avoid an SOL game? Mm-hmm. Because that's, this is classic that. But if Fields does play. Now we've got that mobile quarterback that is going to give me a heart attack. So that was going to be my one more thing. So I'm going to do a second, a different one. Also, we usually do two, which we didn't, but what, when we're, our teams are playing head to head, but um, my one more thing is I do, I do think fields will play. I think he was close to playing, but he, it was a Thursday night short week. So he had an extra 10 days for that throwing thumb to heal up and get it full of practice. And we'll see, we'll see if he's doing uh, full practices or FPs, as they say, the cool kid lingo instead, you know, instead of LPs or limited practices or DNPs um, this week. And that'll tell us a lot because I'm looking forward to seeing what the bears can do. If Justin Fields is airdropped into what we've seen the last couple of weeks where the bears have looked kind of frisky with Tyson Bajan doing ball control. And I want to see the bears offense run the same offense as they've been running with Tyson Bajan. Cause that's the big knock in Chicago. People are saying it was, why didn't we just run this offense with Justin Fields? It, it would look better. Um, and, but since you talked about the quarterbacks, I want to see if uh, Montez sweat and the bears defensive front four can continue to gel and uh, wreak havoc on the composed uh, and unrattable uh, Jared golf this year. Yeah, the lions have a very good, offensive line so that is gonna be a very hard test for, uh, yeah although the by tie did just hit ir so mm-hmm. that's fair um but you know when you've got a really good offensive line it's next man up and they've invested enough into it that it wouldn't kill them to lose one guy mm-hmm. yeah especially when the other positions are so good you don't have to you can you can provide help to that guy you can always help exactly. one offensive lineman you can't help more than one though. exactly you can make up for one for one guy that's way below average, but not two. Exactly. So who's your pick? Lions. I'm picking the Lions too. It's not that. It's. I, I think. <laughs> I hope the Bears will keep it closer, at least frisky with uh, Fields in the game and show signs. But I think it's Lions. They're just ahead of the curve. Um, 
the next one is the Chargers continue to run their NFC North gauntlet, uh, playing the Bears two weeks ago, the Lions last week, and now they are going to Green Bay to see if they can beat the Packers. What's your one more thing on this game? Well, the strength of the Packers team so far this season has been their pass and defense, which is really about the only thing that you can rely on for the Chargers. So that's the matchup I want to see, as I want to see the the back seven of the Packers go up against these in- incredible receivers that we're seeing from the Chargers and Justin Herbert throwing them open. And this works out well because my one more thing is on the other side of the ball. I want to see for the third straight time, an uh, NFC North team lean on the run against the Chargers who like to give up the run. And it would be nice to see the Packers take the ball out of Aaron, um, sorry, Jordan loves hands a little bit and give it to Aaron Jones. Because as I was kind of alluding to with the Steelers, the more, Jordan Love throws, the more likely he is to throw bad throws. But if you keep it simple, lean on the run, take your shots downfield, Jordan Love can light up the scoreboard, um, you know, with some big plays here and there. And that's what I want to see them do. I want to see them feature Aaron Jones and try to keep the ball out of Justin Herbert's hands and keep them in past defensive situations. But who do you think will win? Oh God, I, this is an awful pick them. This is the hardest decision of the year, to be honest, because I just, it's so hard to pick the chargers, especially on the road in Lambeau. But I've also seen Jordan love throw three straight game losing picks. <laughs> um, but I gotta, I'm going to go with the Packers. I just don't think the chargers are well coached enough to beat the Packers in Lambeau field. I think there's still a little Lambeau magic left. The fact that this is an early game swings it for me, too. Yeah, I'm going to pick the Packers here. West Coast traveling east playing early. That's always right. Yeah, with a bozo coach and a one-dimensional mm-hmm. game plan. Yep. The I one agree. thing that makes me think of watch out is the Chargers pass rush because they do have one. Yep, but yet they still continue to have a bottom three defense somehow. But yeah, they do have the Bosa-Mac combo, so... All right. Um, And then we got one last night game to cover. We got the Minnesota Vikings, the newly rejuvenated Minnesota Vikings, led by Josh Dobbs, going against the also rejuvenated uh, Denver Broncos coming off their upset wins over the Buffalo Bills and even the um, Kansas City Taylor Swifties in the recent weeks don't sleep on this game because both of these teams are red hot and playing incredibly well right now Mm -hmm. Uh, i want to see if this broncos defense uh continues to look unbelievable against all the weapons of the minnesota vikings including possibly justin jefferson I, I I hate to be redundant but i want to see if the wrecking ball that is the uh the Tomlin voodoo magic it maybe has gone to Josh Dobbs or Josh Dobbs sanity like Lynn sanity for those of you who watched NBA during Jeremy Lynn's era in the New York um yes Dobbs just seems you can't prepare for him he's just an agent of chaos like the Joker and his properties wearing purple now um can he wreck that <laughs> Broncos defense who has been since that 70 point game, the Broncos defense has been one of the best game defenses in the NFL, especially their past defense. So I think that side of the ball agreed with you, Joe. I think that'll be really fun to see because I think that um, honestly, the other way works too, because the Vikings defense has also been a quiet unsung hero going up against a resurgent Russell Wilson. So this will be a fun game to watch. I am actually looking forward to this Sunday night game. Yeah. Who do you th- Who do you have as a winner? 
I'm going to go with Dob Sanity. Keep it rolling. Vikings on the road. Yeah. This is, I think, a really tough game to call. And they, because these teams are so closely mirrored, they're both really good defensive teams with Insert weapons and good, and good enough play at quarterback with good enough running back play. I'm picking the Broncos here uh, just because their defense has been so unbelievable that sooner or later Dobbs is going to have to start making mistakes. That's true. And and they're at home. I'll stick with my pick, but I think yours is probably better. Well, and, I, I, have you seen the way the Vikings have been playing? They could easily win that's this game. True. This is a coin here. flip. This is the Spider-Man meme game of the week where the two Spider-Men are pointing at each other because they're the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have one game on one team on by the Colts come back from Germany to celebrate their gigantic dominating 10 to six victory over the Patriots who honestly, it sounds like their victory was so big. The Colts Patriots rivalry under Tom Brady and uh, Peyton Manning might've finally ended with the uh, Colts victorious getting Bill Belichick <laughs> to part ways with the Patriots this year. Um, do you have any other news? Oh, gosh, the Colts? the Colts would Colts fans would, live that forever there there are Colts fans that still consider the Patriots to be their main rival going back from the Peyton Manning days yep so if they can you know roll down the window and stamp an x on for a picture of uh Bill Belichick on the side like yeah we got him like the Red Baron yeah you know, <laughs> last keep... laugh exactly so Raymond if you're listening uh pat yourself on the back real quick because you guys can take credit for that regardless if it is true or not can't take that away from fans. That's why it's short for fanatic. Exactly. But that's all the time we have here for the Midwest Football Podcast this week. We are so grateful that you spent your time with us on this about roughly hour and a half that we've got here. Uh, so thank you. And uh, I do hope you continue to hit the, the like, the subscribe, all those things that help us reach you faster and grow our show. I would like to also thank Raymond, who. Uh, besides giving us some feedback has also created our wonderful intro and outro theme music off of his uh, digital album uh, call to me and which is you can find wherever digital music is sold and also chris brandley for doing our logos but we will be back after week 11 for our next reaction episode as we get closer and closer to thanksgiving but until the we can smell the turkey cooking It's fifth quarter time as we take it into the locker room. We will see you later. I miss you already.